This is a post-Christian podcast. We are the sacred collective. All are respected. All are heard. All are welcomed. Join us. Welcome to the Sacred Collective. Uh, we have a fantastic interview with a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Josh DeKaiser. And uh, I guess before we just dig into some of the questions, um, Josh, maybe go in and kind of say like how we met um, for any of our listeners that are like, how how did Brian find this this person from all the way you know overseas? So maybe. Just- oh, yeah. Where are you, Josh, by the way, for our yeah. listeners? Why don't you. Tell us where, oh, yeah. where we're talking to you from. Yeah, we should start with that. Over here, it's uh, it's eight thirty. I'm in Europe, and to be in the Netherlands, to be precise, um, and so that's like seven hours away from you guys. It is, yeah. Well, thank you for taking time um, out of your night and your Sunday night um, to talk with us, since it's only one thirty in the afternoon here <laughs> in St. Paul. Um, yeah, so maybe. I'll maybe jump into like how I feel like our first time Josh, you and I met uh, was at a seminary um, at Bethel Seminary, that place that I don't like talking about as much. <laughs> um, I think I remember the. I think it was like a because you and I both had our masters in Christian thought there, and Dr. Kyle Roberts had um, like a thing for Christian thought uh, students, so like for incoming students. And then for people who were like graduating and I was graduating and he had asked me and a couple of the other people who were graduating to kind of come in and talk to some of the newbies. And you were one of the newbies, even though you're older than me. So I think that was the first time we met. And then from there, I think uh, we just became friends. Maybe had you TA'd. Very good. Um, We're drinking too. What are you drinking? I'm drinking. um, What is it? Whiskey. It's mm. Irish whiskey. Cheers. Mm. Very good. We're drinking Thank you. We're drinking a, a Belgian beer, Whole Garden. <laughs> Who Garden? I was going to say you can probably yeah. pronounce it a lot better yeah. than we can. But yeah, and then I think I think I don't know, our friend UTA'd one of my doctor in ministry classes and then we had mutual friends and then we just hung out from there, right? Yep, that's correct. The first uh uh distinctive um recollection i have of us meeting was you cleaning um the seminary hallways um and so yeah i i i was i was intrigued in you and i i think one summer in 2010 um there were some more personal matters that concerned both of us um and so we got talking a little more and and that's how we slowly uh, build up a friendship, even though we never spent time in class, and it was really after your time, uh, or when you did your doctor of ministry, actually, in mm-hmm. Bethel, when we finally really got to know uh, each other much and much better, and we struck a deep friendship. That's uh, so. I'm I'm super honored uh, to be on the podcast, but I'm also very happy. It's, I'm, I'm in touch with with one of my very good friends from Minnesota. I know, and now that we're on Skype, if we ever you know, want to just talk and say, hey, there's our friend face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Um, we can do that, so that's fantastic. I guess maybe before um, we jump into questions, because we've been trying to get this uh, interview 
together for a couple of months now. I looked at when I sent you the questions, and it was all the way back in August. <laughs> and we're a couple of months from that. Um, but maybe uh, you you just came back from a conference that we had some mutual friends at. If you could, in, I don't know, like five, ten minutes, just say what that conference was, and uh, that would probably kind of bleed into what some of our conversations yeah that's that's kind of some cool synchronicity i actually was incidentally uh, in contact with barry taylor a couple days ago and while i was messaging barry brian was like hey we need to set up this this interview with with josh and and somehow it came up in our conversation brian that that you were attending the european radical what is the european radical theology seminar is that what yeah josh what was it called again yeah it's the european radical theology network network yeah so that's just kind of a funny little incidental thing that we, we have some shared shared friends. So that's kind of cool. It's very cool, yes. So yes, maybe in do. a nutshell, kind of just describe, uh, if you can, um, what that was all about, like how it started and like what you guys talked about there. Sure. Let, let me just first say who I am. Um, um, I'm Josh T. Kaiser. I did my – I'm from the Netherlands. I did my um, – MA in Christian Thought at Bethel Seminary, St. Paul, um, as a good evangelical, started deconstructing, um, and because of family circumstances, decided to hang on in the Twin Cities and uh, do a PhD at Luther, got admitted, did my PhD there in the theology of Bonhoeffer, Mm. and um, then moved back to the Netherlands uh, two years ago, and um, really felt like a theological orphan in the Netherlands, of course, not networked. Um, uh, among theologians here, but also orphaned because I uh, deconstructed my evangelical faith and I'm in a position that I cannot go to any church. I don't hate the church, not at all, but it's like I can't do it anymore, mm-hmm. uh, not for now. And so I feel like an orphan having lots of ideas that don't ring a bell with uh, the people over here. And um, yeah, so then I I got in touch with the with some of the folks of the uh, ERTN and uh, one of them Barry Taylor, but also the Dutch organizer Wouter Neuenhausen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he interviewed me for his podcast. We became friends, and yeah, so then I decided to go to the to this uh, network meeting. We we spent uh, like a really weird and super fun time together. Uh, Friday night and then Saturday morning hung out for coffee and then joined the the Geestrift Festival in Utrecht, which is sort of a post-Christian, radicalish, um, um, alternative Christian. Uh, <laughs> I love these descriptors. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what to call it, but <laughs> very interesting. A lot of fun. Yeah, but so... Um, it's really a very uh, the very beginnings of a movement, I think, in Europe. Of course, radical theology is in itself already a fringe movement um, in the theological community in North America. Um, but it is something in North America, and it is really nothing in Europe, even though it has very strong roots in uh, European theology and philosophy. Think even of the theology of Luther. Um, and think of the continental tradition, uh, philosophical tradition, think of Zizek. But it really is an American movement. And so now a bunch of these people are finding each other across Europe and we're saying, we need to do this here. This is urgent. There is something important that we have to bring to the table. And we live in dangerous times. And uh, we were joined. So there was Barry Taylor, 
uh, Josef uh, Gustafsson from Sweden, there was Walter Neuenhausen who organized the event, and then we were joined by Peter Rollins. Um, so that was a, a big surprise for all of us to have him there and to be sort of not a moderator, but an ins- inspirator and a brainstormer to get together with us for like a bunch of like three or four hours. And uh, cool. we had a wonderful time, uh, did, did some talk, talking back and forth over what this would have to become and what would be the definition for such a movement. And it's, it, nothing is set in stone yet, but we had a wonderful time. Came up with some form of statement that can be captured in one sentence, but I won't do that here because <laughs> that's up to up to those in leadership or those who are organizing the event to sure. come out with that. But what, um, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. I, I was just going to ask what what is the uh, I'm asking out of a place of ignorance. I'm not just setting you up uh, to talk about it. I'm, I'm just curious because I don't know what is the landscape of evangelicalism in Europe like um, maybe relative to in America? Because I know when, when Barry was kind of just briefing me, you know, very, very quickly on, on the event, he mentioned that um, it, it, it's kind of some of the stuff that you were talking about, about how uh, radical theology can apply to Europe, um, maybe not in reaction to, but in comparison to in America. I'm just, I really am, am ignorant as to the landscape of evangelicalism uh, in Europe that you're even approaching it or, or the landscape that you're approaching with radical theology that, that you're responding to. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Uh, maybe Mary may already have said the most important things there, <laughs> but it, um, yes. So in, in the U S radical theology, I suppose sets itself up against both liberal theology and uh, evangelical theology, mm. but because of the situation in the U.S., it is especially in reaction to evangelical theology, um, and such a dynamic is completely lacking in Europe, um, okay. because evangelicalism is very small. Yeah. Yes, I am, a, I am an evangelical uh, by origin, no longer an evangelical um, group in the evangelical movement, and now, looking back, I say, hey, I was an American evangelical, except without American citizenship. <laughs> but religiously, I was an American evangelical. And so, yes, there are pockets, and there is a small movement, and, and there is a certain percentage of the population in the Netherlands. It, it's probably a little bigger in uh, in uh, the UK, because the UK is part of the Anglo-Saxon world, Um and was caught up in some of the events that took place in American evangelicalism, or in the origins of it anyways. Um, so, yeah, Europe is a, d- a different beast, and then you have the Lutheran countries, and you have the Roman Catholic countries, mm-hmm. and especially Roman Catholic countries are, yeah, that there's even much less of evangelicalism there. Mm-hmm. But radical theology is not just a response to evangelical theology, it is a response to Funny enough, to the post World War II climate, yeah, where yeah, sure. so it's it's extremely relevant, especially for Europe, where we say we're we're empty-handed. The God, the God we believed in, does cannot possibly exist, not in that way, at least. Yeah, that's so. So the claim God is dead is has been extremely relevant for Europe, and mm. of course, Europe led the way for once in declaring God dead and living as if there is no God. Cool. This is a uh, great conversation. My my best 
or my my most familiar reference point, and Brian and I have talked about this a little bit before we started this conversation with you. My biggest reference point for Death of God theology is Altizer, who is who is obviously reacting specifically to American evangelicalism. So it's interesting to hear about the application of Death of God theology. I guess it did you know or, originate in Europe, but but still hearing about its application um, in Europe in in, in, in European. Christianity, um, I'm sure that's a totally a totally different beast from what it is here for us. Exactly, and I would say that both the opening statement of Barry Taylor on Friday and then Peter Rollins' statement later on in the evening were very apt in their application to the European situation. We're living uh, in apocalyptic times. There's apocalyptic imagination. People are fearing the end of the world, and on the political scene, there is just so much destruction on, on the climate scene. There is so much destruction going on, so much fear. And Barry Taylor aptly said, um, so the apocalypse is a place where new things are born, where, mm. where something blossoms. And that is what radical theology can be and contribute to. And then Peter Rollins uh, had a slightly more urgent uh, plea, and he said he says that he's really afraid of what is coming or where we're at politically and, um, well, in terms of all the issues we're facing in the world today, and that there are reactionary forces at work that want to um, uh, trample upon the weak, the, uh, the weak mm-hmm. uh, in society and scapegoat them so, and get rid of them in order to sort of restore the balance or restore moral order and that such people and such forces uh, look beyond the fact that at the heart of reality, there is a certain brokenness, there is a void, there is a lack, there is something that is broken. And so the deep, and, and so in that sense, radical theology is going back to the root, the root of reality in this, in this sense. Uh, what is the heart of reality? We don't find a unified truth there. We don't find the final core of absolute truth, dependable truth. No, we find brokenness. And then he br- briefly explained that you can see it in different disciplines, that people are discovering that in many disciplines, and that the only way forward is to carry that brokenness and embrace it and embrace the lack oh, cool. at the heart of reality. And and so in that sense, radical rea- uh, theology goes to the heart of, it's in that sense, very philosophical, to the heart of reality, embraces the brokenness and takes that as a message to the world. We need to live out mm. the embrace of that brokenness and only then can we move forward as a world. That's great. And that's funny because this morning uh, at Revolution Church that I'm sure Brian has mentioned to you, and we, we talk about a lot in this podcast, Jay Baker's Revolution Church that, that Brian and I are both involved with, we talked a lot about uh, you know the the object cause of desire and and the sacred object and all those terms that that Pete Rollins likes to throw around. Um, but that yeah. really relates into what you're saying and in, in that in its essence, in its definition, it is unobtainable and um, and and that kind of I guess defines the the, the brokenness of us in, in in wanting to pursue a thing that cannot be obtained. Exactly. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's super re- uh, relevant for the European context because we've had. Uh, the Nazis, and uh, who says we won't fall prey to <laughs> something weird again? Mm. Yeah, you, 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 know, don't, you don't need evangelicalism around to to be concerned and to do such radical theology. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Um, just I understand what radical theology is to an extent, but maybe for some of the listeners who might you know have heard that, 
you know, phrase thrown around because I know we've had, you know, Maria French on. Um, we've had, my, you know, Scotty Williams, which you know, Scotty. And we've all talked about that a little bit, but I don't know if we've ever just kind of fleshed out in, a, I don't know, a couple minute thing of what radical theology to use. I think Maria maybe had done it, but that was back in May. But just, and I think you've alluded to it a little bit and explained it, but I don't know, in five or six minutes, can you just kind of explain what radical theology is to you and why you think it's so important um, to to take it seriously and to study it? Right. Well, first first off, I think radical theology has uh, um, many applications, and there are many ideas about what it is, and that was immediately clear in our small meeting of only 16 people on Friday. So it was immediately, immediately clear on Friday that there is no consensus on what radical theology is. Um, so I'll just give you my, my own intuitive version of what I think radical theology entails. Uh, first of all, I think the word radical refers to the sense of that it goes, it goes as far as it needs to go, or it goes beyond the limits it is extremely radical. Um, of course, it started um, in the 60s with the movement of the the death of God theologians, uh, Hamilton, Altizer, and others who declared God dead, um, whether they were talking about the actual God or the God of Christianity or the cultural God. It doesn't really matter, but they came, they came with a very radical claim that God is dead. And um, so, th- so in that sense, radical theology continues that vein of train of thought of a very radical approach to theology. But radical, the word radical itself um, is derived from, uh, is a cognate of radix, which means root in Latin. And so radical theology also goes to the root of issues. Um, and, well, I think I, dis- I discussed one form of uh, going back to the roots um, Peter Rollins, uh, Peter Rollins' work is trying to uncover the heart of reality and the lack we find there instead of a unified truth. And that is going back to the root and then uh, work out of that root, of that understanding of the embrace of that lack to bring healing to a broken world. Um, in that sense, you can go back to the root. For me, um, um, I also believe that the Christian tradition um, even though we've, had, of course, when we look at the Christian tradition, we largely think of Christendom, or for us evangelicals, we think of evangelical theology as that monolithic, monstrous thing uh, that has determined truth f- for us and on top of us. Um, but of course, the, the 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 Christian tradition has always had a, a very uh, subversive elements and and strains of thought and traditions within it. It's not a it's not a monolithic tradition, and uh, for me, when I think about radical theology, I very much go back to Luther. Luther's theology, um, his justification by faith, has been uh, co-opted by Protestantism and by Calvinism and by Evangelicalism. But if you really understand Luther, Luther's discovery of the justification by faith, um, you have to understand it in the context of the theology of the cross which is a very extremely radical theology. It, in fact, it's so strong that I am convinced that uh, it was Luther who actually opened the door for atheism initially. Mm, wow. Wow. Hot yeah. takes. I like it. Hot takes from Josh. <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> Why not? We got to get, we, what we need to do 
we can talk off air about this, but we need to get Josh and Scotty on a conference call here together, and we can talk about Calvinism and Luther and stuff like that, because I feel like that would be a, a very well-informed, yet maybe some a little bit of dissonance that would be kind of beautiful, I think, in, in different differing opinions. <laughs> The only problem is I love Scotty too much. Okay. So I'll, true. I'll just give in. <laughs> you caught me. That was a setup. You and and, I, and I, <laughs> I love both Josh and Scotty equally, and I wouldn't want to. Okay. I would just be like, hey, guys, hey, whoa. I feel like I would just be like the mediator. It was a setup. That's my bad. No, maybe we should do it, though. I would love it. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Um, that That's was, great. That was brilliant. Um, yeah. I think another kind of question that I've been thinking about of asking you is – you know, deconstruction is such a hot button word, and it's all over. You know, Christianity, and at least in America, and I'm sure in Europe. But why, in your opinion, do you think you know so many Christians? I would say predominantly evangelical, speaking in that kind of phrase or terminology. Why so many evangelical Christians have deconstructed, and not just deconstructed, or or and or um, just have deconverted away from christianity i mean what i mean why do you think that is such a huge thing because i mean people walk away from faith all the time but i think you're seeing in more monumental numbers of christians being like you know to hell with that and or you're seeing a lot of evangelicals like myself go from evangelicalism to you know very high church product protestantism to either either doing that or to being like fuck it i'm not gonna be part of this christianity thing at all what I always like to do is compare the situation in America to the situation in Europe post-war, post-Second World War. Uh, and it's an oversimplification, but it helps me to understand the situation in America a little better. I think the the movement of deconstruction, faith deconstruction, is a pretty much uh, an, an American phenomenon rather than a European phenomenon, even though... Nowadays, when you use the word deconstruction in, um, in, in the Netherlands, for instance, I think people kind of get what it's about. But it's relatively, a relatively unknown term. So what happened after the Second World War in the 60s is that people started asking questions about God. There was a sudden economic boom after a terrible world war. And I think those two combined in uh, people realizing that they really did not need a God. And modernists, as we were back in the 60s, we just took um, the glass that was filled with religion and we simply emptied it and didn't go to church anymore. That was it. Done. And so the churches uh, lost members and nobody thought thought a second about it or had any second thoughts about it. Now, what happens in America is that in terms of religion, America seems to be sort of trailing behind Europe like by 40 or by 30 years, I don't know how much that is. And of course, it's not literally a trailing, it's its own development. And so it's in particularly in the way it's doing its own development that you get the phenomenon of deconstruction. Um, so after the 60s or late 60s, you had a, a new wave of philosophers, uh, the postmodern philosophers with their deconstruction, think of Derrida, um, who um, deconstructed modernity. So now, in the 70s and the 80s, or 80s and 90s, I don't know, you get the situation for evangelicalism, that evangelicalism is a modernist faith that uses the tools of modernism, which is argumentation, 
uh, epistemological proofs and that kind of nonsense that worked for some people in modernity and, and during and after the Enlightenment, but they don't work anymore. They don't work anymore because the postmodern philosopher has deconstructed that kind of thinking and have and found it wanting. So, um, defense of faith becomes a laughable thing for a lot of people that are on the fringe or a lot of people that have sincere questions and that start realizing it is not about epistemology, it's not about knowledge, it's not about argumentation, but it's about existence, about living it out. And so the situation in America therefore takes another turn. People are not just saying, oh, it doesn't work, and you have an entire modernist culture that simply then turns its back on religion, but you get a lot of uh, people that are sort of imbibing the the, the postmodernity vibe with its criticism of modern modernist thinking, and, and that that res- resonates with them. That that's my take. But I, I know this is not the explanation. I know there is much more to it. For instance, one of the facts is that North America is it just simply a much more religious environment, and so instead of throwing away religion. Uh, completely people um, do religion in different ways spirituality you know you know what so that's 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 what i'm thinking that's sort of my answer i know it's not complete (laughs) it wouldn't be radical theology if you had a complete definable (laughs) answer to it so thanks for that kayla (laughs) yeah (laughs) it has to stay fuzzy i feel like with radical theology the the more clearly that you can focus the image the more you realize how out of focus it is to start with it's like yeah. if we get a full a full uh well developed photograph of the core of radical theology it is a very fuzzy thing and that's kind of the point of it i think yeah i agree well and i and i've always thought like a man and i actually we were laying in bed the other day a saturday morning it's just a fun saturday morning taco deconverting <laughs> our deconstruction um, cause I mean, Josh, you know me, like I, you know, especially in seminary, I could just be in the library, just being lost in thought. Um, maybe that happens being a Christian thought major anyway. Um, but just kind of like just going, cause me and her were both raised the same way in the assemblies of God, super evangelical Pentecostal. And we were just kind of talking about the absurdity of how we were raised in a lot of ways, you know, like we were talked, we talked about, how you know growing up in the ag you know you would like our both our both of our churches had sunday night services where that's where they kind of hit you over the head with the hellfire brimstone they hit you altar with, call like, yeah like altar calls you need to re- repent you need to redo all that and i said there's no no wonder there's so many former christians whether they're atheist or agnostic now or or whatever maybe practicing another religion who had so much spiritual trauma a religious trauma with it that they've just and it, and it saddens me because it's like I feel like some a lot of people still want to have some sort of connection to the divine whether call it God Jesus whatever the spirit but they have just been so shut such a bad version of God that therefore they're like screw it it doesn't exist it's all gone and I can accept that if you know someone obviously who's an atheist but it, it saddens me where churches have gotten this free pass this card of like we can act and 
say whatever we want to our congregants, to people, and you have to deal with it, and they don't look at the repercussions that what it's actually doing. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, and so, you know, I, I haven't deconverted, but, you know, I'll say to people, like, hey, sometimes I feel like I'm a pretty good Christian, and other times I'm, I feel like I'm barely hanging on to, to that card, and sometimes I feel more like an atheist. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's, if I can have that dualism, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe, maybe I can. But I do think it's just, it's amazing how many of my friends from seminary, from college, just in life, who've been raised in the church, we've either, I don't think there's anybody outside of my family that has been like, this is the way I was raised and I'm the same way that I was. They've either walked away from faith all altogether or they've radically, using that, that word, radically diverged into um, some sort of quasi-Christian, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, whatever. So I think it's fascinating to, to talk about, to you know, digest if yeah. we can. Something that's very curious to me, Josh, is, is the fact that you still choose to engage with Christianity. Um, well, also, I want to just make as a side note to myself to remember for later. I'm I'm also extremely curious as to why you were ever why the fuck you were ever evangelical, being a, a European who uh, who wasn't saturated with that kind of um, I don't want to say toxin, but I'm going to say it with that, that the toxin of evangelicalism. That was mean. I'm gonna, no, I'm not going to edit it out. But uh, but I, I I am I am curious as to why you you still choose to engage with the um, with the medium of Christianity and, and Christian language and things like that. Is it because of your philosophical leanings? It, it doesn't sound like you give, uh, you don't seem to give too much weight to thinking about eternal consequences for religious affiliations. Um, I'm just curious as to why you still choose to engage with religion and Christianity to the extent that you do. Yeah. Well, I have a very simple answer to that and it's not the perfect answer. Is it because it's everywhere? It, it, no, it's a good one. It's it's so fun. Like, why the fuck did I get a PhD in theology if I'm not going to do theology anymore? So I need I need to make it count. Um, you have to yeah, make so, it count. You already paid yeah. for it, so I paid. For, come on, I I got to do this. But um, yeah, I was raised an evangelical Christian because my parents, um, after the Second World War, they were teenagers and they got in touch with people from Youth for Christ. Oh. Became, became Christians, and the funny thing is that in that climate, in their culture at that time, that was a pretty radical thing to do. Mm. Okay, that was a pretty daring thing to do. My dad left the Reformed Church and started a house church. I think my dad is pretty cool, and uh, yes, I I don't uh, subscribe to his uh, fundamentalist paradigm anymore. And uh, his idea that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God, but I get where he comes from, and I and I admire my my parents for what they did, <laughs> but I think I have to do it my own way and uh, anew, and we need to be at least as radical or much more radical than that. Um, yeah. So why do I still use the the Christian vernacular, so to speak? Um, I think there uh, there is something in the. Uh, well, first of all, I've, I've been raised a Christian, and once you've been raised a Christian, um, something of that background, of that upbringing, 
uh, and that vocabulary and the mm-hmm. conceptuality lingers. Mm-hmm. It, it haunts so you? It's either going to linger in an antithesis or it's going to linger in an affirmation or a new synthesis, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to linger. And um, when I deconstructed, I was not like some people who say, fuck it all, I'm just going to go all out against Christianity, I'm becoming an atheist. Um, and, and the reason why I didn't do that is, I guess, in, for, in the first place, because I wanted to be able to still pray with my parents. That's sort of the, because I was eight years in the U.S. away from my family, and I said to myself, I need to be able to pray with my parents, then at least then I'm doing it right. Um, but then the other reason, a more actually much more important reason is this. We evangelicals are brought up in black and white thinking. There is no gray. It is true or it's wrong. Mm. It's from God or it's against God. And, and so it goes. It's sin or it's not sin. Don't waver. Don't be of two minds. <laughs> and so what do these evangelical atheists do? They take their modernist uh, black and white thinking with them on their way to deconstruction. Wow kick out evangelicalism, kick out God, kick out Christ, and I don't blame them, by the way, and I'm speaking terms with some of those people, but aren't you then like a post-evangelical evangelical? Have you really <laughs> deconstructed? No, wow. you haven't, because you're taking the mindset, you're taking the basic way of thinking mm. with you, mm. and so you have you still not abandoned and deconstructed the core of the problem, and so I wow. thought that was pretty lame. Let's not go there. Let's not do that. That's great. Yeah, you, you, you stay a fundamentalist, but your rhetoric has changed, maybe. There are fundamentalist atheists. I think uh, Josh and I have been influenced a lot by Pete Rollins. Um, I would say, I know for me, his... I think one of the reasons I can never ever come out in my kind of like doubt and say that I would be ever an atheist is because I said... Because he brought up... I forget what book he brought it up in. But he said, if you're an atheist, like a hardcore like atheist, he's like, you're no different than a fundamentalist Christian. And I think, I think with exactly what you just said, Josh, is like explaining that. Where is that the divine magician? Maybe he might have said that in the divine magician. But it, it, it is, it, and it's true because it's like you you've taken one. You said I've rejected all these tenets of this faith called Christianity, and therefore there is nothing anymore. But you're so f- they they mm. actually a fundamentalist atheist will take well you believe to to every Christian like you believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible right no I don't actually well what because then when you start picking that apart yeah. to the atheist then the atheist is like oh wait what like yeah yeah uh-huh. and, and it's not to like deconstruct an atheist because I, I want to respect you know people who don't believe in God and I have friends who are you know pretty hardcore atheists but I do think kind of Pete has kept me at least in my own thinking mm-hmm. away from toting that line too much you can i would say that you know i have that 50 50 of well maybe like 70 you know 75 25 of i'm a christian 75 percent of the time but the 25 percent of the time i'm just this extreme extreme skeptic or mm. doubter you know maybe more agnostic than atheistic but i think i don't know i just think it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important in. also to point out that you can be agnostic to a former understanding of yeah. God. And that's something yeah. that we talk about a lot too. Um, yeah. And, it, and in as far as you are willing to, re- if, if you want to, if you choose um, 
you know, if, if, if you choose autonomously to still engage with, like you said earlier, the vernacular of Christianity and you, and you choose to still find a usage for the broken tool of the word that we call God, you can. You know, you can say, oh, yeah. God, is, God is an abstract concept of love or God is a, a cultural conception of, 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 of love or of justice or whatever it is. Yeah. Like there are ways to still engage with those terms if you choose to. I'm not saying that you should or should not. Yeah, yeah, and and I think then um, a, a third w- reason why I stayed with uh, Christianity uh, is I think that I did not make the step from evangelical theology to radical theology, or uh, yeah, but that I actually took a detour. Is it a detour? I'm not even sure. But um, at a Luther Seminary, I had to uh, because I chose Bonhoeffer for my subject my dissertation subject, and I had to research Bonhoeffer, and I had to research then his Lutheran roots, because I realized that that was going to be my work. Um, And so I sort of reinterpreted Christianity, or the Christian faith, through Luther, and the radical different Luther that is radically different from the Reformation, I'm sorry to say, um, back to Bonhoeffer, back into a post-metaphysical type of Christianity that is a complete redescription of everything and um, gets to the heart of it all. So I think, and, and it's only after that that I was ready to say, hey, wait, um, radical theology is just fits right into that narrative. So now I can complete my project and become a radical theologian. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that kind of just dovetails into... You, you like your dissertation and i i can obviously remember before you moved back to um to the netherlands you sitting in the bethel seminary library just pumping away at at your uh doctoral work and especially your dissertation so and writing a dissertation obviously not as intense as as you josh but knowing the the um amazing feeling and the frustration <laughs> of of that uh but maybe just you know explain yeah you you wrote your dissertation on on Bonhoeffer but I don't know go as short or as long as you want of just like your dissertation and why you felt passionate to talk about Bonhoeffer and explain like you said his kind of like Lutheran roots and why is it important um, you know for the Christian community and not just the Christian community but for people you know at large yeah I, I'd love to. And indeed, I remember writing my first lines of uh, text of my dissertation. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck did I just write today? Is this ever going to be a dissertation? Right. But yeah, yep. And it's published now with more Zebeck in Germany. So I'm very, very grateful and very happy that it did come about. But okay, so Bonhoeffer. I chose Bonhoeffer because I had attended um, what? Oh, they call it auditing, right? I audited a class on Bonhoeffer by Joel Lawrence, professor at Bethel at that time, and um, and and so stepping into Luther Seminary as an evangelical, I had no clue what theology was. You know, I had heard a couple of names, and um, and I felt I had the feeling that Bonhoeffer provided some link with my evangelical background, but was also safe, sort of. Uh, <laughs> politically correct save for my new environment so i decided on bonhoeffer that's how it that's how it began um and um i had uh, one class by dr kiefert 
over at Luther Seminary, where he did philosophy for understanding theology, but basically it was phenomenology. And uh, so we went through all the phenomenological stuff and uh, then came upon Heidegger. And I don't know what happened or where it happened, but of course I had to write a paper and not knowing anything about liberal theology, I was trying to figure out a way of writing a paper on Bonhoeffer and phenomenology. (laughs) (laughs) And and then all of a sudden I had the insight. It's like, wait! Wait, wait, he's using Heidegger. He's using Heidegger. And that was, I think, the beginning uh, aha moment for me um, where, I re- where I realized that there was something to say, there was something to dig. And, of course, Bonhoeffer is hugely popular because the man was a martyr and he wrote fantastic things from prison. And actually he did. I mean, like, come on, he did. And he even right. opened a door for radical theology. I think he did. Of, of course, Bonhoeffer scholars don't like to admit it and they've... Uh, denounced uh, uh, the radical theologians for calling Bonhoeffer their uh, ancestor, but no, <laughs> sorry, he was. I think he was, but he was not necessarily in the way the radical theologians thought in the 60s, because Bonhoeffer was only radical because he was rooted in his radics, in his root, which is Luther. And if you do Luther right, you can open up to very radical uh, discourse. Anyway... So people don't know the intellectual Bonhoeffer. Mm. People don't know the Lutheran Bonhoeffer. They always like to talk about his ethics, you know, and fuzzy feelings and um, nice quotes and and, and whatnot. So I decided to tackle Bonhoeffer's Act and Being, which is his second dissertation. And uh, it's a completely impossible text. Try read it. It's like, what is he even talking about? (laughs) But nice thing about that book is that he uh, sort of uh, browses or parses uh, philosophy and theology from Kant onward. And then he interacts a lot with Karl Barth, and then he does his Heidegger gig. And so those things are super interesting. And um, basically what Bonhoeffer is doing in, in Act and Being, he is saying that, um, yes, revelation needs to have, have the first say. Revelation is an address from outside. But, and this is the big point that he makes, Karl Barth is wrong. He is right in saying that we need to sort of get back to the basics and that German liberalism has it wrong and has anthropocized God. Um, but Barth has it wrong because the way Barth goes about it is by putting God at a distance. God is the holy other. And God is very far away and we have never direct access to God. And even Christ is indirect revelation, yada, yada. And so Barth Bart basically plays off the idealism book of, of Kant's philosophy. And, um, and so in Barth's time, like that was the thing to do, dialectical theology. That's how you do it. That's the only new hot way to do theology. And so little Bonhoeffer in his 20s says, uh-uh, that's, that doesn't work. And I'll tell you why. And so he gives a couple of reasons. And then um, um, after sort of rejecting idealism, that is the eye setting the boundary between itself and revelation, meaning that the eye is in control of the thing. In other words, that God is still domesticated indirectly. Then he goes on to Heidegger and he looks at Heidegger's phenomenology. And he says, look, uh, uh, and that is Heidegger's being in time. And he says, look, humanity is thrown into the world and it already finds itself in the world being part of the being of the world and then it asks a question of its own being and that's how it's how it discovers its own, its own true nature blah blah 
and and then Bonhoeffer takes that that uh, ontology, that uh, uh, philosophy of being of Heidegger, and applies it then to theology to the church. And he says, look, the church is nothing other than Christ existing as community. Yeah, cool. And so. And so, so if you, when you become a believer, like you, you believe in Christ, that Christ is from God, and then Christ is the Savior or whatnot. And then so there is the justification by faith thing. And so you jump into Christ, right? And you don't know if Christ is true, because if you try to ter- determine from outside whether Christ is the truth, or a little bit like Bart wants to do, then, um, that, not really, but kind of, if you make it an epistemological question before you jump in, then you are in charge of it, right? Then it's mm-hmm. not justification by faith. Then you have control over revelation. Then you are the outside determinator of whether it's true. But So you jump in in faith, and then you look around you, and you look, geez, I'm in Christ. Huh. And so it's a hermeneutics that comes into existence, just like in Heidegger, that humanity is part of, of the world, and, and it questions about its own being. And so when you're in Christ, you question about your own being, and then you realize that, to the extent that you that you do Christ, you discover what Christ is. So it it becomes then not an, uh, a, uh, a theological method that is based on an epistemological trajectory, which Bart's theology up, the, up to that time still was, but it becomes a hermeneutical and participatory ethic, and that is like what, and that's so that's what the young Bonhoeffer discovered. And he, at that time, it was still his prideful best, you know, trying to uh, um, beat the whole world, including Karl Barth, and show that he was the best theologian. And kind of, <laughs> I think he kind of was. And so then it was only later that it actually affected him and that his pride had to uh, cave in. But why is Bonhoeffer... It, so in doing this, Bonhoeffer very closely follows Luther, so Bart think, he thinks he follows Luther, and he even calls his own theology a theology of the cross. And Bonhoeffer basically gives the middle finger and says, no, that is not a theology of the cross, because the theology of the cross is not about how far God is away from us, but it emphasizes the presence of God among mm. us. And what is the presence of God? It's not God's omnipotence. It's not God, the electing God. It's not the sovereign God. You hear all the Calvinistic and Barthian things here. No, it's not. It is the body of Christ. That is the presence of God. Oops, what is the body of Christ? It's on the one hand that body that was nailed on a cross, but isn't it also not the body of Christ, the community? And so that's what he plays with. And so in that sense, he's super much following Luther. And so he gives a very interesting redescription of Luther's theology of the cross that opens up on a post-metaphysical redescription of theology, something like that. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. That was fucking awesome, dude. As I say in a couple other, when we've had a couple other interviews with people, this is free. It's free content. It's, it's free content. Um, and I just, I, I'm just super excited that I get to be friends with people like you, Josh, uh, where I'm like, my brain can't even, I would say I can understand a lot of content, but like just what you just said, like I understood it, but I was like, why don't other Christians understand that? Why don't other, like, why can't we preach that stuff from like the pulpit? Because that is just, what you just said is so beautiful and amazing. Nice. 
uh, does do you think that the declaration or maybe observation of the death of God calls the body to filling the absence of that? What? Sorry, we have a. Sorry, my daughter came out. <laughs> All night. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. Love um, it. Love. Do you do you think that the um, the the declaration of 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 God's death mandates that the body or the community step up to certain roles that were once filled by this ideological omnipotent being? Is is that is 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 a part of the observation of the passing of this once? Arguably, literally, or or, or uh, metaphorically present entity of God does doesn't that is that a call to the body to step up to to looking out for each other and and being you know being love to each other or filling a role that was that was once filled by something that may or may not have ever been been there. Caleb, that's that's absolutely fascinating thinking there, and yes, I wholeheartedly uh, affirm that. I do think that is the case because. As long as we understand faith uh, sort of along a vertical axis from up and down, um, we also be, we continue to be dependent and enslaved to the idea that God will take care of it. God yeah. will do yeah, it. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's yeah. up to God. Uh-huh. It's almost so it's a cop-out, really. Yeah, we don't take responsibility. Um, and um, and um, so... it. it if it is true that Christ is exists existing as community, uh, which is a very interesting proposition, but it is a very biblical proposition, and it's yeah. deeply in the thought of Paul and in the thought of uh, Luther. If if that is the case, then yes, it is only it only becomes real to the extent that it is lived out. And isn't that actual the core of the teachings of Jesus? It, go back to Jesus' teachings and. Again and again, he will hammer on uh, uh, and emphasize the importance of living it, fucking living it actually out and doing it. Mm-hmm. And that uh, love for the na- love for God is ful- fulfilled in loving the neighbor, and that's what it is. So I wholeheartedly agree to that. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> amen. I miss part of that, but I'm just going to say amen to <laughs> That's great, yeah. A little bit. That's that's awesome, man. I I I am loving this conversation. Did you want to move on to another one of your uh, prefab? I think we kind of went through our prefab conversations. This is how our conversations with or my conversations with Josh goes. Um, (laughs) Well, they they do. Like I loved when I was doing my doctor and ministry stuff at 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 bethel and you were doing your phd stuff at luther because you would come over to bethel and actually do your work in our library um and just having a conversation with him of of this so i got some of that that mm. what you're talking about josh got that a long time ago which was exciting um maybe tell us where uh how people can get your your book because um, like you said your dissertation is now published Tell us where um, people can get that, uh, where they can find it. And then, you know, maybe plug some of your other stuff because you said you had a blog and, and other things. So where people can kind of find what you're doing, your stuff, because you are a theologian, you're a public theologian. So I, wanna, I want our listeners to be able to find that um, on the interwebs and support you. Yeah, I would, I would love to talk about that. Um, well, 
So my dissertation uh, is published under the title Bonhoeffer's Theology of the Cross, The Influence of Luther in Act and Being. And it's uh, published by Moore Zebeck, an academic publisher in Tübingen, Germany. Um, and it's probably best to go to their website. If you go to Amazon, they'll you know, add another $20 to the price for what? You know, Amazon is making money off books that I wrote, the book that I wrote and I'm not making any money off. So don't go to Amazon. <laughs> it's an anti-plug. This is yeah. our first ever yeah. anti-plug. Don't go, <laughs> exactly. that's don't go to just, Amazon. That's just plain ridiculous. Um, yep. So then um, I have a book coming up. I'm just a co-editor and I have a couple of essays, but... Uh, interesting stuff, though, where I mix radical theology with a criticism of um, capitalism. Mm. And that book is, uh, uh, yeah, and I'm doing this together with uh, an Ethiopian uh, uh, PhD colleague of mine who is now teaching in the Twin Cities. Um, he's Lutheran, and so uh, lots of uh, non Western Lutheran contributors. Um, and so, it, yeah, it's a, it's a great honor to do that book with him. It's called A Church for the World, The Church's Role in Fostering Democracy and Development. So it's not really my, my thing, develop, development, I don't know, you know, but I wrote some, some nice stuff along and yeah, just a very nice book. But I'm working on a new book uh, together with Tim Senapati Rutnev from, um, yep, from Bethel Seminary, uh, the, the research librarian there. Yeah, um, hey, I wrote something so, with him, too. Yeah, you did. Yeah, very nice paper you Thank guys you. wrote. Yeah. So um, just as, as I had great conversations with uh, Brian over the past years, I also had lots of wonderful conversations with Tim and where we would sit uh, sort of for lunch in the library, in the seminary building and then just get angry and mad at the things that were going wrong and how the, how the seminary was being squandered and <laughs> going through waves of bad leadership as we perceived it, whatever. And, of course, what is wrong with evangelical theology? So we're finally writing the book that we were supposed to write a long time ago. And the title is something like No Longer Wider Than Snow. And, of course, the wider than snow refers to uh, the, the, the quest for... Uh, the purity, purity culture and evangelicalism, mm. but it also refers to the white privilege that uh, evangelicalism protects by means of its, its theology, subconsciously, no doubt, <clears throat> in many cases, but still. And so we're just going through the whole, uh, let's say, the doctrinal playbook and uh, <laughs> give, give our views of what's wrong with it. So it's it's going to be maybe an angry book. I don't know, but it it just needs to be written. I need to deal with that heritage of mine, N not because I want to piss on it. Um, and and of course, I've I've noticed over the past years that people that I was connected with at Bethel they just ghost me on Facebook, and I understand it. But I'm I'm <laughs> not against my evangelical friends, but I deep I'm deeply convinced. Yeah, evangelicalism is a very unhealthy theology, and it's an untenable theology, and it's a self-contradiction uh, back and forth. So it needs to be done, and I hope that some evangelicals will benefit from it. Yeah, and then uh, I do have a future book planned, um, my, and that's going to be my first radical theology book. And um, the working title is something like "God Damned." 
um, and then an A slash theist uh, proposal for common people or something like that. And in that book, I'm going to argue that Jesus Christ is the synthesis of the absence and the presence of God. That's really cool. Yes, but bringing a lot of justice stuff in it, because I do believe that radical theology is only truly radical and meaningful if it makes a contribution to the problems in the world, and if it is willing to stand with liberation theology on the side of the oppressed in the world. Um, oh, and then I have a blog. If I can just mention my blog, yeah, I'd be absolutely. very grateful. Uh, www.aftergodsend.com God's end, E-N-D After God's end Yeah, aftergodsend.com yeah. What do you talk about in there? If you could just tell the listeners if, if they go to your blog, yeah. what they would find Lots of radical theology <clears throat> Lots of angry theology Especially after I returned to the Netherlands I was not in a good place And my sister got breast cancer and so there's a couple mm-hmm. of angry pieces there. But I think amidst the angry pieces, I started picking up the elements of, of a new theology that became uh, radical theology. And, um, and so and now it's, that's much more constructive. Yeah. Cool, man. It's so exciting. Um, this is great. We want to be respectful of your time. I know it's, like you said, it's seven hours difference over there. Um, you're ahead of us. Um, but, Josh, I just can't thank you enough for um, – being on our podcast, Sacred Collective. Um, I, we love our small group and our conversations, but I do like peppering in, you know, interviews. Um, I you do, got some cool friends, Brian. I, I, I do say I have a lot of friends that, uh, and it's not just because we're friends that I want to have you on, but I think what you, what you are talking about with Radical Theology, with Bonhoeffer on the Cross, like, it's important and it's, mm poignant to have in our conversation and i'm just lucky to have a friend like you um but then what you're doing like what your dissertations on and these forthcoming books that you're doing i just think um i just think it's fantastic what you're doing and i'm just privileged that uh you would be on our podcast finally after a couple months of trying to find a time and a day that works that we finally made it happen but so thank you so much um for yeah. this, well, Brian- this time you have some cool friends too, Caleb. I don't know why it is that we never met. It, it, that's weird because I've been away for only two years, and there you are, <laughs> podcast podcasting away, with my friend Brian. <laughs> well, I've known Brian for exactly two years. Yeah, so I think it's pretty much the quick tidbit uh, for you, Josh, because a lot of our listeners know already. But I actually met him because you know, Josh, that I'm United Church of Christ and UCC. But um, yeah, uh, Jay Baker moved into the cities probably like four and a half, five years ago now. Um, not right. him and his ex-wife, but he brought revolution with him from New York where he was at. And then I was like, you know, when I kind of wanted to take a break from UCC stuff, not cause I d- didn't like it, but just cause I needed, you know, another kind of spiritual community. Then I went to revolution, you know, Amanda and I went to revolution and then like a lot of the people that were there that I knew before, weren't there and then i see caleb and i was like hey this is a new guy like you know kind of my evangelical self was like hey i'm gonna go talk to him (laughs) and what caleb did was is awesome he was living in kansas at the time with his family and he was following jay like online and, and and doing what he was you know following revolution and all that and caleb was like you know what screw it i don't have anything holding me back i'm just gonna move to minneapolis yeah and wow. um, help out with with revolution and help out with Jay and you know I met him and kind of actually how the pod how we actually started the podcast was 
we Sacred Collective was just kind of like a small group. And then Caleb was like, I invited him to Sacred Collective. And he's like, hey, I got some audio and, and audio stuff. Can you, can we record mm-hmm. it? And I was like, that's a fantastic idea. And so it kind of just pigeonholed from there. So, yeah, about two years ago yeah, in this month, um, in November, we met. and That's crazy. You know, we've been really good friends. So Jay, Jay brought us together. Well, it all goes back to Pete. Pete it Rollins. does, yeah, it does. Because Pete Rollins, I try. You know what? I tried to become Pete Rollins' sound engineer first, <laughs> but but then on it, but then uh, I was like, I I, I want to either you know move to California, or move to Minnesota, you know, with, with with you or with Jay, and then it just incidentally worked out to where yeah, I, I ended up linked up. So with like Jay. Pete and Jay are best friends, and then Jay Jay always will be like, oh, my friend Pete, and then. Everyone has it. I feel like we all are under the umbrella of Pete Rollins in some way. And then, um, you know, so Caleb is our, not only is he a part of Sacred Collective, but he's our producer, editor, extraordinaire for Sacred wow. Collective. But yeah, he's, uh, Caleb's a good guy. And and nice. anyway, enough enough for that. I'm glad that we've connected. This is great. Yeah. So yeah, thanks yeah, a lot, absolutely. Josh. Um, and I, I, we asked this to all our guests, or I asked this. In the in the future, would you be game to be on again uh, as an uh, as a guest again? Yeah, I'd be honored. This this conversation is absolutely life giving for me. Um, I, I love it. Yeah, and especially with uh, you know, anytime shoot me a text or an email, like when some of your books, other books are coming, and we'll totally we'll totally shout it out, and you can come in and Thank talk you. about it because you know I want to help my friends out and uh, get out get. Get that out there to people who um, need to hear it. And I'm going to find a way to trick Brian into um, setting up a conversation between you and Scotty with with us listening in. Uh, you talk about Luther because I think you two have very different takes on Luther. Which Maybe I respect yeah. both of which. I do. I do. All right. Yeah. 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 Let's do it. <laughs> All right, Josh. Thanks so much. Have a great night, man. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation. Find us on social media at SacredMN. That was a post-Christian podcast.